You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look Podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at The Washington Post. I don't even know where to begin with all the DOJ, FBI, Trump, nuclear papers news this week. So I'm just going to go right to Leanne Caldwell. She is the an-, an anchor at Washington Post Live and co-author of the early 202 newsletter. Leanne, welcome back to First Look. Yeah, great to be here, Jonathan. And it has been quite a week. Yes, quite a week. You are coming to us from the halls of Congress, and we're going to talk about why you are there in a moment. But let's start with the FBI search uh, at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Yesterday afternoon, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland briefly addressed the issue of that search. Let's listen to part of that. There are, however, certain points I want you to know. First, I personally approve the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. Second, the department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. So, so Leanne, late yesterday, the Post broke the news that nuclear documents were among the papers the FBI was seeking. We are in, we're deeper in uncharted territory now. Talk about the significance of that revelation in an already stunning story. Yeah, it really is pretty, pretty stunning. The fact that, you know, if that bears out that there are nuclear documents that are part of this search. And that would also explain why the Department of Justice and the FBI went to these lengths. You know, Merrick Garland was likely very aware of the political implications of this, how unprecedented this is. And you would think that someone who has been not uh, wanted to be nominated or, you know, almost nominated to the um, or was nominated, but not confirmed to the Supreme Court, someone who has a long history of following the law. Um, and understanding Washington, D.C., would know that moving forward is only necessary in really extreme circumstances. And Merrick Garland yesterday said that he was the one who approved the DOJ from seeking that warrant. And so this was him. He took responsibility and he seemed very confident um, in the fact that he was justified in it and saying that he was going to ask the, the courts to unseal that warrant. So, of course, we're still waiting to, for, for that to be unsealed. Hopefully it'll happen very soon. Um, but that could give us, obviously, a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. And, and to to that point, yes, Attorney General Merrick Garland, um, they they filed the papers to have um, the the warrant and the evidence receipt um, um, released. Uh, a judge put a 3 p.m. deadline on that. Um, former President Trump said uh, on his Truth Social Network, uh, released a statement saying, "Hey, yeah, um, release everything." This comes after it's revealed that the, ra- the, the, the search of Mar-a-Lago was not the first step. The first step happened back in June when the former president was subpoenaed for those, for those records. And so I put all, put all that out there to, to ask the question, if you have any insight, how likely is it that Trump's lawyers will go through the formal process of making the warrant 
and that evidence receipt available to the public as requested by the attorney general? You know, all fingers are pointing to the fact that it will be released. I mean, Trump, as you said, said last night, I encourage them to release it. The thing is that Trump the day before had said that he wouldn't release it, that it was the onus was put on the Justice Department to do so. Well, Merrick Garland essentially said, "Okay, um, you challenge me, then I will absolutely release this. And so, you know, we could see this information very soon, but something that's always been really interesting throughout this entire week is that in the very first statement that Trump put out Monday night, essentially confirming that there was a search by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago, he said that he had been cooperating with, um, with uh, you know, law enforcement officials and, but usually a cooperation doesn't lead to an FBI search. So, there are obviously many definitions and levels of cooperation. So it seems like the FBI and the Department of Justice was not satisfied with that level of cooperation and thought that there was more things that were necessary. And as the Post reported tonight, you know, nuclear documents might be on that list of things they think is necessary, especially since Mar-a-Lago is a public club. There are people from all over the world that come there. There are foreign officials sometimes that still come there. Um, it's not the most secure place in the country, mm-hmm. Jonathan. Right. And as has been reported since the revelation of, of the post um, 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 breaking news story about nuclear documents, it's been reported that nuclear documents in general have a very close and closed circle of people who have access to them and they never leave. Uh, (laughs) They certainly never should leave the White House. Uh, Leanne, I can't, um, um, you've got such a fantastic backdrop. As I said at the intro, you are in the halls of Congress, very dramatic. And today is a very dramatic day in the House. The Inflation Reduction Act um, is set to vote. Uh, The House is set to vote on the Inflation Reduction Act At some point today, it passed the Senate last weekend. What are the prospects for swift passage? Yeah, that's right. So I am in the beautiful halls of the Capitol. um, And so thanks. I'm glad it worked out. Bearing with me for that. But um, yeah, so today could be a really big day for Democrats and President Biden. As you mentioned, this bill that has the largest investment of climate change provisions in this country's history, $370 billion. It fulfills a decades-long campaign promise by Democrats to allow the government to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs, which will reduce the cost of prescription drugs to many people on, on Medicare. Um, it, it, you know, there's a, a cap on how much seniors can spend on prescription drugs at $2,000 a year. So this is a bill, while it's not nearly as big as the Build Back Better bill that included all the care economy components of it, this is a bill that does, uh, you know, fulfill what Democrats have been wanting to do for a very long time. As you mentioned, it passed the Senate last week. It's going to pass the House of Representatives today. Um, It will be done today. We don't know how long of a day it's going to be. Republicans can force votes that uh, politically difficult votes for Democrats throughout the day to drag this process out. Um, But 
very soon, this bill is very likely to reach President Biden's desk, giving Democrats just three months before the midterms a huge win to run on. So, so Leanne, I mean, the, the, the conventional wisdom is that because the Democrats are in the majority, that this bill is going to pass. However, the Democratic majority in the House is only four seats. Um, excuse me, Punchbowl is reporting today that there are some Democrats who haven't gone on the record as to saying whether they're going to vote for it, one of them being Jared, Jared Golden, Democrat, Democrat from Maine. Is there any danger that Speaker Pelosi won't get, won't, won't be able to pass it? Or the fact that it's coming up for a vote means that the votes are there and it will pass? Yeah, so sometimes they put votes up that they're not sure. They're pretty sure about this one. Um, here's some signs. Um, Speaker Pelosi is holding a press conference today. Uh, Jim Clyburn, Steny Hoyer are holding press calls today. The Progressive Caucus is holding a press conference today. The Climate Change Caucus is holding a press conference today, all doing victory laps before the actual vote happens. My sources on the Hill are very confident that this is going to pass. There might be a couple defections like Jared Golden. I actually reached out to Jared Golden's office on Monday to see if how they what they were thinking about this vote. Haven't heard back yet. Um, but my sources think that Democrats will be united in this and there won't be any Democratic defections. Now, of course, we'll have to wait and see. But all signs are pointing to passage of this legislation, um, you know, and the party being quite united over it. Mm -hmm. uh, last question, and I don't know if you know the answer to it, especially since you're, sit you're there in the halls of Congress, but if the House passes it, how mm -hmm. soon will we see the victory lap on the South Lawn? Will they do it fast and do it like tomorrow on a Saturday, or are they gonna wait uh, until next week to do a big to-do, do you know? It's a great question, and it's still a little bit unclear. I asked the same question to Speaker Pelosi's office last night. Um, they said that the Senate still has to sign the bill. They don't have to pass it, but there's some procedural, ah. logistic, traditional things that have to happen. So the Senate has to sign it. Then it can go to the president. The president is also on vacation in South Carolina. So um, there's a few factors here, but I, I expect Democrats wanting to move this very quickly. You know, I forgot presidents on vacation in South Carolina, so that's not going to happen for a while. <laughs> Leanne Caldwell, co-author of the Early 202 newsletter, anchor at Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too, Jonathan. Well, we're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my post columnist colleagues, Dana Milbank and Jennifer Rubin. Dana, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. All right. FBI search, nuclear documents, Mar-a-Lago, Trump. Dana, then Jennifer, your reaction to this stunning week? Uh, stunning only begins to uh, uh, bring this uh, into focus. So uh, just, I mean, Leanne laid it out very well, but what we're hearing now about the uh, possibility, at least, uh, that there are nuclear secrets that he's keeping there 
in defiance of a subpoena, uh, puts it in an entirely different light than uh, we heard early in the week with a hysteria. And it also shows how reckless uh, the rhetoric has been. You have Republican lawmakers in Congress whipping up people, I would say, to violence, saying uh, they're coming after you. Nobody is safe. Uh, you have Fox News talking about an attack on you, a war. Uh, you have Newsmax saying th that uh, they're worried that uh, the President Trump is going to be assassinated. Uh, think about just how reckless this is with all the talk of civil war and calls to arms in you know, Trump-friendly social media. Uh, all of this being done to whip up uh, enthusiasm of the Republican base. And look what they are, if, if this is all correct, what the Post has been reporting, they're defending a man who's uh, uh, absconded with nuclear secrets. So uh, we're already seeing that violence uh, we saw yesterday in Ohio, as Merrick Garland pointed out, a huge number of threats against the FBI. Just the seriousness of this matter uh, contrasted with the recklessness of the rhetoric is, is just extraordinary. And I want to talk um, uh, about um, the, the attorney general's comments um, uh, defending the FBI in a moment. But Jennifer, your reaction to this stunning week? I think it's sort of like um, the movie script that goes up to the head of the studio and he says, oh, this is preposterous. No one's going to buy it. Uh, get me a rewrite. Um, but it is happening. And it's so stunning because suddenly January 6th might not be the worst thing that Trump did. Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable when you kind of get down to the list of particulars. Um, it seems like eons ago that we heard that the Secret Service was destroying um, re records that related to January 6th. But it, you have this constant drumbeat, this constant crescendo. And as you said, it was not just that they were objecting. Um, it was that they were really inciting the mob. And it wasn't just minor characters. It was people like Steve Scalise, who is the uh, number two person in the Republican House uh, leadership. Um, you have people um, like Susan Collins, who certainly should know better, um, being indignant. We are owed an explanation, she declared. Um, and this constant insinuation that the um, FBI is akin to Nazis, a reference that is so offensive on so many different levels. And now you have this utter silence. Since the news broke last night, social media has been like a dead zone. They are scratching their heads, I am sure, trying to figure out how to explain this, how to spin this, whether they should spin this. Um, there was supposedly going to be a big press conference with a bunch of Republicans um, to denounce all of this. That was canceled for today. So I think <laughs> they are absolutely paralyzed at this point, um, trying to figure out what they're going to say about this. Uh, my suggestion would be to say nothing for a change. And, and I, I mean, I laughed at, at, at that the comment of the, the, the press conference being canceled because of course it's being canceled. I mean, can you imagine standing them standing before the press and having to answer questions, not just about, as Rand Paul said, uh, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, when he said that the, the FBI action, quote, was an attack on the rule of law. But that kind of goes out the window when you read the, the Washington Post exclusive story about well, the FBI was there looking for nuclear documents. Um, a whole new cast uh, on this story. Um, Jennifer and, and, and Dana, Jennifer, you're an, you're an attorney, so I'm gonna come to you on this. The attorney general says, okay, 
we're filing papers to release the search warrant and the and the evidence receipt, uh, basically saying to President Trump, former President Trump, um, okay, you want this done? Let's do it. The former president puts out a statement saying, oh well, I I think we should do it. Um, and then and, and the judge says, you know, you y'all have to do this by 3 p.m. My question, Jennifer, as the lawyer here, um, just because Donald Trump says he wants it released doesn't mean that the warrant and the evidence receipt gets released. Don't his lawyers have to go through a formal process to make that official? And do you think they will actually go through the motions to follow through on what Donald Trump says he wants done? Well, they do have until today, as you said. Um, the proceeding is the motion to unseal the documents. They can oppose that. They cannot oppose that. Um, and then the judge will make a determination. Um, what we know, however, is we're not going to get um, nuclear secrets released. Um, and we're not going to get, most likely, the underlying affidavit, which is the document that the investigators take to a judge and say, here are all the terrible things that we're concerned about. Here is the documents. Here's why we know that there are documents there. That document, in all likelihood, is not going to be released. That's a prosecutorial document that's very valuable. What is going to be released is sort of the form search warrant about what they were looking for. Um, and it's usually just like a one page cover letter. Um, and then there's going to be the receipt. Um, the FBI actually gives you a receipt. We've taken this many boxes. Um, we have taken this many stacks of paper. And we're going to get that as well. Now, I don't think we're going to get the contents of those documents, not only because this is an ongoing investigation, but because, as we've been talking about, there could be nuclear secrets in there. But all of this goes back to the utter hypocrisy and the utter shamelessness of Donald Trump. He could have released the same receipt and the same warrant the day that he got them, the FBI literally drops it off, gives it to you, and you are free as an individual to release that to whomever you want. Remember, Trump was the one who let everyone know that the search had gone on. I don't know that we would have known because the FBI went out of their way to be inconspicuous at Mar-a-Lago. So um, I think um, Merrick Garland is giving Trump uh, exactly what he wanted to and more. Um, and I think the utter silence on the other side so far is indicative of the fact that they hadn't really thought this through. Um, Dana, you, you, you brought up um, um, the, the verbal attacks on, on FBI agents from folks uh, in the Republican Party. Let's take a look at what the attorney general had to say in his defense of the men and women of the FBI. Let me address recent unfounded attacks on the professionalism of the FBI and Justice Department agents and prosecutors. I will not stand by silently when their integrity is unfairly attacked. The men and women of the FBI and the Justice Department are dedicated, patriotic public servants. Every day, they protect the American people from violent crime, terrorism, and other threats to their safety while safeguarding our civil rights. They do so at great personal sacrifice and risk to themselves. I am honored to work alongside them. And Dana, as you mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation, this statement mm -hmm. came just as the FBI 
was in a, in a battle with a man who tried to um, a- attack an FBI facility in in Ohio. A man who we now know was at the insurrection on January 6th. A man who posted messages on Trump's Truth Social network. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about the talk more about the dangerous moment that we're in and why what the attorney general said is so significant considering what happened, what was happening in Ohio at the same time. Yeah, it, it's a very perilous moment. You gotta think of the, the backdrop too. We've had this uh, rise for years in the threat posed by a violent uh, right-wing extremist, uh, both in the uh, number of attacks and in the lethality uh, of attacks. So that that's the backdrop. Uh, everybody's on edge right now in our political system. So you can't say that any one piece of rhetoric causes any one act of violence. But what we certainly know is that this volume of rhetoric of driving hysteria definitely creates violence. And, you know, tragically, I have no reason to believe that was going to be an isolated event. Uh, I mean, the Republicans are all about uh, crime and uh, uh, standing by the police, they are attacking the primary law enforcement organization in the United States of America as corrupt. Uh, this wasn't an FBI raid. This was a court-ordered search. They know that. Uh, that's how the rule of law works. So they're turning people against uh, uh, law enforcement. And uh, look, there are going to be unstable, unhinged people out there. And when they keep hearing you are under attack, they are coming for you, the government is the enemy, well, they're gonna be motivated to violence. And it all it takes is one person to do something truly horrific. Uh, and I, they've just given an, an extraordinary invitation to people. Uh, and it's, it's out there. You can't uh, put that genie back mm-hmm. in the bottle, even if we find it, oh, and by the way, uh, they were. It was a very legitimate search to protect this country's nuclear secrets. And Jennifer, I'd love to get get your thoughts on this real quickly. Also, because I don't know if folks realize this, that today is the fifth anniversary of Charlottesville, and uh, what ended up being an attack that killed Heather Heyer, um, who was peacefully demonstrating the neo Nazis and white supremacists who had descended upon Charlottesville. You know, this entire presidency and his post-presidency has been characterized by the instrumental use of violence. This is what fascistic movements do all over the world. Either the violence or the threat of violence continually looms. And whether it was Trump praising um, that there were very fine people on the side of the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, or whether he was encouraging his supporters to march on the Capitol, or whether he and his supporters have been denouncing the FBI, It is always with one eye on the mob, and uh, he has always been infatuated with this idea that the people would rise up um, to be with him. And as he sat there watching the television on January 6th, delighted that these people were storming the Capitol, what did he do? He put out an incendiary uh, tweet that further incited them against his own vice president. So this is um, the problem that we have been dealing with. And what is even more insane and more troubling is that an entire political party has embraced this. It's not just one man freelancing with his little mm-hmm. mob. It's an entire political party. And that problem is and, going to be with us for a very long time. And Jennifer, that is a fantastic segue, because um, I'm going to give the last, um, the last part of this show to Dana Milbank, who is the author of the brand new book, 
the destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Uh, given the title and given your, the columns you've been writing and the and what you've been saying in this conversation, you are not you're not surprised by any of the by any of the things that that have happened. How did we get to this point from Newt Gingrich to Donald Trump to where we are right now? Yeah, that's a, that's exactly the theme of the book. To understand where we are, to understand Donald Trump, you need to go back about 25 years. You know, what we're talking about right now, for example, this violence and the whipping up of violence, we've seen this before. Uh, we saw this in 1994 and 1995 in the run-up to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, Republican lawmakers talking about the government being the enemy and being a threat to people, uh, conservative personalities on the radio saying you need to uh, uh, shoot the uh, ATF agent, take a headshot, kill the sons of bitches. Uh, we saw it again uh, in, with the Tea Party in 2010, uh, 2011. Uh, you had uh, Sarah Palin saying, uh, uh, don't retreat, re reload. reload. You had a lot of gun yep. imagery. You had an intimidating uh, march on the Capitol that was in, in, indeed uh, uh, presaging the uh, January 6, 2021 attack. Uh, you had uh, later on, you had the uh, Clive and Bundy anti-government violence. We've seen this show over and over again. It gets worse uh, in each uh, incarnation. Uh, and that's just one of the uh, ideas in the book. I've looked at that fomenting of anti-democratic uh, violence, the increasing uh, uh, embrace of white nationalism as a deliberate strategy uh, within the party, and the constant use of uh, disinformation as a political uh, weapon, and also the use of dysfunction, of throwing sand in the gears of government as a political weapon. Uh, we see all this in the Trump era and in the post-Trump era, but in reality, uh, it, it began 25 or more years ago, and it's just been one iteration after another of the same thing. And Dana, you say there's a similar pattern between the way Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House, the way Newt Gingrich and Donald Trump use language. What's the common thread? Well, uh, Newt Gingrich's innovation, he came in, uh, rose up in the late 1980s, became speaker in 1995. He said the problem with Republicans is they're not nasty enough. Uh, he came out with a new way to speak like Newt uh, and said you should speak uh, about Democrats as traitors. Uh, as cheaters, as liars, uh, people abusing power, a uh, sick and corrupt. Uh, these are this is commonplace now, but this was an innovation at the time. And basically, he was uh, replacing the greatest generation uh, that fought the uh, the World War II together and knew that the other side wasn't the enemy. They're just your political opponents. Newt made the other side into the enemy, uh, and we've been living in that world ever since. And that's why uh, we've not been able to uh, have a, a reasonably functioning government. Uh, that's behind um, all of this vitriol. Uh, so, you know, uh, Donald Trump's American carnage speech is basically a rerun of uh, Newt Gingrich's speeches from 1994, making people feel desperate that the, uh, that the country is under assault and that we're going down. Dana, I mean, this is a very sad and depressing um, sort of overview of where we, how this started and where we mm -hmm. are. I'm just wondering, yeah. in the reporting for this book, in the writing of this book, do you see how or whether we will get through this? 
Yes, we will, Jonathan. And it's a good news story in the long run. This is all driven by the demographic changes as this becomes a white minority nation 20, 25 years from now. This is the backlash that uh, Newt was uh, encouraging, that Karl Rove was encouraging, that Sarah Palin was encouraging, and now that now Donald Trump uh, is encouraging. That will be resolved. We will become a multicultural America. Uh, and uh, what, what I'm hopeful is at that point, we'll be able to rebuild these institutions. Uh, the, the bad news is it's going to get worse before it gets better as this mm. backlash continues and gets more and more desperate as uh, less educated uh, white uh, male Americans feel that they're threatened because they've been uh, lied to by uh, Republican politicians, get more and more desperate and potentially uh, violent. So short, short term, pretty grim. In the long term, we are going to get through this and rebuild. Jennifer. Um, not only have you read the book, you've blurbed the book. So what is, what is your, what do you, what do you make of what Dana, what Dana has argued? First of all, it is a great book with Dana's telltale wit. Um, and just when you're in some deep, dark, um, heavily researched part, part of the book, you get um, a little zinger from um, Dana, which is very um, exemplary and very illustrative of his work in general. So it's a fabulous book. I think the um, message that I came away with is that while the Republicans have been in this um, really um, politics of personal destruction, lying, endemic lying, um, Democrats have really not clued into the nature of their opponents. And they have been trying to play by Marcus Queensberry rules. <laughs> and I think even this president has been reluctant to call out what the Republicans are up to. So I hope in some ways, not only um, January 6th, but Dana's book and um, the current uh, really unbelievable set of it uh, events at Mar-a-Lago would be a wake-up call to Democrats that they have to level with the American people. They have to call um, their opponents what they are, which is anti-democratic, un-American, and they have to explain what the stakes are to the American people. Um, they have to explain what it means to say that democracy is on the ballot. What does that mean? Um, what does that mean in practice? And I think um, there are some Democrats who are certainly waking up to this. Ironically, the person who has woken up to this and who is best articulating this is Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, right, right, Liz Cheney. Um, we went overtime, but it was well worth it to talk about Dana's new book, The Destructionist. Dana Milbank, Jennifer Rubin, thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.